This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Well, I'd like to begin by welcoming you. I'm Paul Newton. Uh, I'm from the Network Division here, and this is a seminar in our current Issues in Assessment series. Well, we're very fortunate today to be able to welcome Professor Cathy Silver from Oxford University. Cathy is Professor of Educational Psychology at Oxford's Department of Education, and she works on various aspects of early years and primary education and intervention. That's from curriculum and pedagogy to uh, the role of parents in supporting learning and special needs assessment and uh, assessment generally. Her very distinguished academic career began with a PhD from Harvard University, where she studied uh, preschool play, uh, and she continued in Oxford, uh, where she worked with Jerome Bruner in their Oxford Preschool Research Group. Um, and that's where Cathy published an influential book which is entitled Child Watching at Playgroup and Nursery School. Very influential in uh, challenging the popular free play ideology. Cathy has devoted much of her career to evaluation and evaluations of early years provision. Uh, and she's led numerous very high profile projects, uh, particularly those funded by central government. And she's been extremely influential over the years in influencing policymakers and politicians and helping them to really grapple with some of the complexities of early years education. Cathy's name can also be found on the website of Oxford Brookes University. Um, since she was awarded an honorary doctorate in education from Oxford Brookes in 2005. Uh, and if you want to find her on the website, her name is just above Jeremy Clarkson, who also <laughs> received an honorary doctorate in engineering the same year. Uh, that's just one of Cathy's numerous honours. Uh, others include Fellowship of the British Psychological Society uh, and also an OBE for her services to children and families. So, Cathy, we're very pleased that you've been able to join us today and we very much look forward to hearing you talk on measuring quality in educational, early education. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Um, after generous introductions like that, I'm always reminded of a tale told by Lillian Katz. At the very end of this seminar, we're going to have a little role play with a vignette that Lillian Katz has given me. But, so we'll end with Lillian Katz. But I'd like to begin. Um, she always listens through very generous and kind introductions. And she said, oh, you never know what to do. You don't know where to look. And she said, the last time I gave a talk somewhere in Ohio, and she said, they said, how do you want me to introduce you? And she said, well, just say she's the wife of one and the mother of three. Uh, And they got it reversed. (laughs) (laughs) So I think this is a a very nice story. So thank you. So I didn't didn't test your brain and, and challenge you too much. Um, I'm going to talk about the effects of early experiences, both at home and at school, on children's development. And I'm going to look a lot at the methods that we use, and in EPI we've developed some of them. And I'll try in kind of the descant to the talk, uh, talk about assessment, because uh, EPI really is a study based on assessment. We, we wouldn't have the results that we have unless we had pretty rigorous assessment. And I know I'm in a place where you invent new assessments all the time, but when you are uh, doing a very large-scale, very expensive study, we have to be very conservative in our assessments because you can't take a chance and have some new wonderful uh, instrument that some doctoral student invented last year. So we've used relatively tried-and-true assessments, but we did invent one assessment called the Eckers E, uh, and I'll talk to you about that. So um, here's the title, and these are my colleagues, uh, 
Ted Mellowish, Pam Sammons, Iram Siraj Blatchford, and Brenda Taggart were all PIs on the EPI project. Um, today, I'm talking about the effects of preschool, especially preschool, because the government funded us to look at the effects of preschool on children's development. But I'm also going to talk about the effects of learning at home, because in a sense, you can't measure and establish the effects of preschool unless you take into account what the child's learning at home. I mean, if you just looked at children as learners when they go to school, say the age of five, um, you would think that all the playgroups in the leafy suburbs are the best provision because that's where the children have the best scores. And so when we look at the effects of a preschool provision, a playgroup, a nursery class, uh, a children's center, we, for every child's score, we already have taken out of the equation their learning at home. So we really want to find out what's the effect of the early learning that they've done in a center, net of all the other important learning experiences. And that's why we need big numbers, and that's why we need rather complicated stats. But it's so we can look at the effect of each preschool, the Elms Road Nursery School, or the you know, Cedar Lane playgroup, we want to know the effect of that particular setting on all the children that are in our study who attended that setting. How did it have an influence on them? And in order to do that, we have to subtract how, how much learning they've done at home, their parents' jobs, um, their mother's education, which is an especially important influence. So that's kind of... What the way we did our study, but it's in. So I want to talk about methods for studying, but this is the opposite to Project Epi. Um, a few of you remember John Major, but in the very last year of the Major government, uh, I went with Christopher Ball, and we went to see the junior minister for education. And we were trying to convince the major government that they should put more money into early education. And we were given half an hour, and we were able to make a, a, a presentation. And I used the high-scope um, study, which many of you know. Remember, children went to the preschool group. They went to high-scope or the control group. And I had, you know kind of better slides, more colorful pictures of children. And I said, the high-scope study has shown, using experimental design, random assignment, 65 children went to high-scope. It was wonderful. Um, and 57 children randomly assigned. So you have a, con a real control group in the real experimental sense. And these children in the control group ended up doing quite badly by the time they were 27. They came into the high-scope program when they were th three. And here's all the data that we have. We have tests, we have interviews, and we really know from high-scope. And I said to um, this junior minister, and now we know at the age of 27 that these 65 children who went to preschool really turned out better using an experimental design with random assignment. And he looked at me and got a little bored and, you know, yawned, and he said, but what about Liverpool? And I said, what? And he said, all these children are in Ypsilanti, Michigan. There's only 65 of them. You've told me they were very poor. You've told me they're mostly African-Americans. What does that have to do with the UK? What does that have to do with normal garden variety early childhood education? I mean, this is wonderful, and I'm sure uh, the American president might be interested in this, but we would need some other kind of evidence. So in, we decided, the EPI team, 
uh, that we would use another way, another method of research that wasn't going to be a small experiment in one city, in one state, and was really going to be a study of children from around the country, rich homes, poor homes, ethnic minority, um, children of bank managers and brain surgeons. And we really wanted to see how different kinds of early learning experiences influenced or shaped the lives of a whole wide range. And it's called, oops, an educational effectiveness design. Some people call it school effectiveness and that we investigate natural variation. So we have children going to the, not experimentally, randomly assigned to go anywhere, uh, but actually parents making choices, finding provisions, sending their children to these places, and then using multi-level modeling and other kind of advanced statistical techniques, we wanted to see the effect of preschool attendance, if a child went or didn't, as well as the quality of the preschool uh, on children's development over time. So that's the EPI design, and it's really the opposite. It's 180 degrees different from the Perry Preschool Project. It's not experimental, has no random assignment. It's just normal children, and some of our children are in a local authority not too far from here. And there's, there, I think, 16 now. So there may be people who are getting letters from us in the audience. I don't know. Uh, okay, now the epi-sample, we have five regions of the country. We have East Anglia, Midlands, a Shire County, an Inner London Authority, and an Industrial Northeastern Authority. Um, and we have 101, they were strategically selected. They were not randomly selected. Then we have 141 preschool centers in these five regions. It happens to be six local authorities. We paired two authorities that were quite small. Um, so 141 randomly selected preschools. They were, they were the most common preschools of the day. Remember, this is right before the turn of the century. So we have them in playgroups. We have them in nursery uh, classes in primary schools, private day nurseries, daycare centers run by local authorities. They used to be social services day nurseries. Proper nursery schools, maintained nursery schools, and then integrated centers, which were the forerunners to today's children's centers. And just as a, a little aside, when we sat around uh, designing the study, we had a couple hypotheses. Um, and one hypothesis was, are children going to really do better academically if they're in a proper nursery school? And I thought that they would, because I thought having all these babies around and going down the corridor with prams and, I mean, all of the kerfuffle of a, of a you know, a children's center run 48 weeks a year, I thought in a nursery school they can just really concentrate on the learning. And I was wrong. Nursery schools are good, uh, but the early children's centers were as good as nursery schools. They weren't better than nursery schools. They were as good as nursery schools in terms of fostering children's development. So my hypothesis of all these prams clogging up the corridors and you know all the emphasis on cleanliness and hygiene, you can run a first-rate kind of educational institution while you have a full family center. And we gave this evidence to the government, I think, in 2002, 2003, and it influenced Sure Start and, uh, and also the Children's Center program. That was the first hypothesis. The second hypothesis, and this is the one that is the theme of today's talk, uh, there were two theories about how early education might have an impact on a child's development. The first theory is a child goes to preschool, like in the Perry 
project, the high scope. Uh, and when it gets to school, or she, they'll have a stronger profile than the children who stayed at home. And then they'll hold on to that gain as they continue to develop. So the preschool gives you the stronger profile when you get to school, and then you hold on to it. So at each year, as you get older and older, you're still better than the children who stayed at home. That's theory A. Theory B, which was mine, and Iram Siraj Blatchford, I know many of you know Iram, was a more transformative theory, and that is, if you go to preschool, you become a better learner. So not only when you get to school do you have a better profile than the children who stayed at home, but every year you're learning more and more because your preschool has made you grab on to the educational opportunities in your school or in your home or in your after-school religious class, whatever it is, you've become a transformed learner. And that's the theme of today, and I'm going to argue that that's what preschool does, but not any old preschool. It's only high-quality preschools. So of, of, the, of the kind of, you know, the hypotheses we had when we planned EPI over a decade ago... Um, having a whole family orientation and young children does not have to dilute the education. That's certainly good. And the other one is that going to a high-quality preschool really transforms children as learners, and they make more progress once they get to school. So there's some of the early um, hypotheses we had, and we had no idea. I mean, we just thought, We'll see how these children develop because it's a naturally occurring study. We're just watching natural development and we're trying to use statistical models to give us the kind of control that you would get in an experiment. You don't have full control, but we're trying to tease apart the influence of the preschool from the influence of the family from the influence, say, of the siblings, the number of siblings. And we have to do that statistically. And that's, that's what we do. That's why we use our multi-level modeling. So, okay, uh, last bit here, 2,800 children went to preschool, randomly selected. 3, they are randomly selected, but they are not randomly assigned. Get the difference? It's very different. They're randomly selected to be in our study. So they're having their natural whatever it would be, but we randomly select them. And we have a link study in Northern Ireland of 800 children led by Ted Mellowish. And that has more or less the same findings as the Epi English study. And that gives us confidence. It's not just for England, but probably the effects of preschool are positive in the other countries in the United Kingdom. Uh, okay, so we have an educational effectiveness design. The quantitative methods, all this multi-level modeling, led by Pam Sammons, who's at Oxford, and the qualitative is led by Iram Siraj Blatchford, who's at the Institute of Education. And we'll have a few slides from some of her qualitative case studies uh, to bring alive, uh, you know, some of the findings. Uh, okay, it, this is the EPI design. You saw the design for high scope, you know, random assignment, 65 children randomly assigned into a very experimental, highly unusual preschool. And uh, a little fact that most people don't know about high scope, not only did their teachers in the initial high scope get teacher salaries, they all did, they got 110% of the primary teacher's salary in Ypsilanti. And I said to David Weichardt, how did you do this? And he said, well, it seemed to me that teaching preschool was harder than teaching grade one. 
So all of these teachers were paid at 110%. So when you look at the high scope results, you really, you have wonderful results, you know, for every dollar spent, $7 something is saved, but it's on a very, very expensive program. Whereas Epi is looking at your garden variety playgroup, randomly drawn, we got a list of all the playgroups and our authorities by, you know, by area, and we just, you know, more or less drew straws. So what we have is randomly selected children and randomly selected settings. But remember that uh, these are what's going on in natural life. And our job was to see where the really good practice was and then find out what were the characteristics of the really good practice where children just made flying progress. And we had quite a few. Uh, So here, children are in these kinds, nursery schools. They go to school and reception. They then go to key stage one. By then, we were in 600 schools, communicating with school secretaries, parents, children. Uh, They're now in uh, key stage two. They're finished. We've reported up to age 11 at year six, and we'll be reporting on key stage three in September. What are the effects of preschool? What are the effects of primary school? So it's a big study, and the children, luckily, are still getting older. Uh, All right. Now... We have Bronfenbrenner's model. I know all of you developmental psychologists get tired of seeing this, but it was the job of EPI as a quantitative and qualitative study to operationalize what Yuri Bronfenbrenner had in his mind about how children develop. But here we have the child in the middle, and so this child has a certain birth weight and a certain gender. So these are all the child characteristics, and EPI measures them. And then the child is developing in the family, the red, and so we have family characteristics, the jobs that the parents have, how many children in the family, what language they speak at home. We then have the setting characteristics, and here we know about the ratios, we know about the qualifications of the staff, and we know about the quality as measured on two different assessment instruments, the Eckers E and the Eckers R, and they give us different results, and so that's one of the assessment themes of today is how do you assess quality? Well, there are different ways, and the different ways give you different answers. Uh, And then we have the neighborhood here at the outside. So this is Bronfenbrenner, And this, of course, is Epi. We took the Bronfenbrenner nested series of, you know, rings of the influences on a a child's development, and we measured it. So here in child, we have birth weight, we have um, gender, uh, we have uh, whether the child had some kind of illness or was in special care baby unit. Family factors, we have social class of the parents, we have language, I've told you about them. We also studied the home learning environment. And EPI was unusual in being a large-scale study to study the home learning environment, which we did by one-to-one interview with parents. And we really asked them what they did at home. And we did it because we were really, by the time the Labour government had come in, the Labour government wanted to know what kinds of early experiences have the most positive effects on children. But in order to know what was the effect of the Elms Road Nursery School, we had to take account of what the child was getting at home. We couldn't just assume that if this child made brilliant development, it was because of the setting. I mean, you have to factor in what's going on in the home. So we assessed the home learning environment on a scale from 7 to 49. 
we assess the preschool. And now I won't report it. Well, here's the primary school. We've looked at primary school effectiveness, and that'll be another paper, Paul, if I'd come with Pam. And we also now are looking at the effects of secondary school. So all of these balloons are basically the influences on child development. And in a large sample like Epi, we're straining against power, even though we have 2,900, I think, left. We're straining against power because there's so many different influences. It's not just the preschool. It's not just the family. It's, it's you know, the family size. It's, children can go to a brilliant preschool and then they go to a rubbish primary school, absolutely rubbish primary school, where the teachers leave every year. They can't stand it. So we have to know that this child went to a really good preschool, but the primary school was, was not very good. And we did observations in year five to look at the pedagogy, uh, and we also use value-add measures. So uh, these are all of the influences, the balloons. And then here are the outcomes. Uh, we have outcomes at five, age five, seven, 11, and 14 in the autumn. But we look at English and maths. I'll look at the SATs. Although we have many other measures. We have vocabulary. We have phonological awareness. We, you name it, we measured it. Um, but at year 11, we have self-regulation, uh, which is a rating scale filled out by the teacher. Uh, or the, be the primary teacher at age 11. Uh, we have how pro-social a child is. Uh, well, self-regulation, one of our items is likes to work things out for self. Another item is can return objects needed to do a classroom task. Uh, items, kind of schooly items, but then other items can resist distraction by a peer. So there, there are some of the self-regulation items. Hyperactivity we measured, and we measure antisocial behavior. The government, of course, is quite interested in antisocial behavior because it's so expensive for a local authority. So this is, this is kind of the way Epi measures the Bronfenbrenner lovely you know, egg uh, of, of the influences on child development. Okay, so child assessments over time, family information, interview with all parents, case studies of effective settings done by Iram Siraj Blatchery, um, and then observational rating skills for the quality. And I want to talk about how do you assess pedagogical and provision quality. It's not easy, um, and there's no one single answer. But certain kinds of approaches to assessment give you certain, give you certain results. So here's the home learning environment. Uh, this is how we measured the home learning environment, uh, how much parents read with children. These are, just, these are not the full questions, these you know, just summaries. Reading to child, painting and drawing, library visits, playing with letters and numbers, teaching the alphabet, playing or teaching numbers and shapes, and playing with songs and nursery rhymes. So that this index has a perfect normal distribution, you'll be happy to hear, those of you who are statisticians. It's positively correlated with the British Ability Scale, so people who have more challenging home learning environments, you know, challenging in a good way, um, have better scores on the British Ability Scales, they have better reading scores, um, and interestingly, girls have higher um, home learning environments than boys, and we can't figure that out. We don't know whether... Um, the parents are providing it for the boys and the boys are somehow escaping, you know, not wanting it, or whether the family is just directing more stimulating home learning environment to girls. So um, it's a puzzle for Epi. And I throw that out for those of you planning to do a doctoral thesis 
Um, it's a real, for qualitative study, it's really wonderful qualitative study, the home learning environment for boys and girls. And we can't do it in EPI. We can just give you the big picture because we're a big longitudinal quantitative study. But to really understand the details, somebody's going to have to do really, really careful qualitative analysis. Um, okay. Uh, this, is the, this is the effect of the home learning environment on maths. Children are 10. We don't just give SATs. We also give other tests. This is a psychometric maths test we gave at age 10. Uh, and effect sizes, uh, the, the higher the effect size, the, the stronger is the influence. Uh, and these are all the children who had a home learning environment score between 14 and 19. That's a very unstimulating home. So all the children who had a home learning score of 14 is the, is the, the lowest we had. Uh, their average on ma- their effect size on maths um, is 0.21. So if you have a home learning environment, it's not very strong influence on you. You don't do very well in maths if you have a low score. This is a lowish score uh, on your home learning environment, and this is kind of the effect on your maths. And it's actually the same as the bad. So for the home learning environment, the elbow, you know, really where the oomph comes in, is in the, the good or the excellent home learning environment. So those of you who say, well, it's not, it's not rubbish, but it's not very good, um, that doesn't get you much. You really have to have a good home learning environment or an excellent learn, home learning environment for children to do well in maths. So this, this just gives you a sense of what a big influence... And in EPI and in most big longitudinal studies, the effect of the family is like a really big lever. And the effect of the preschool is a lever about half the size of the family lever. But, I mean, what I say when I, I mean, argue with people in government, we don't know a lot about how to pull that, how to change families. So although it's the more important influence, we don't have all that much hard research on how to do it well. Although the preschool is a less strong influence, it's a lever half the size, um, we know a lot about how to make a really good stimulating preschool. So in policy terms, it's a safer return on your money because we know more about it. Um, my view. Okay. So now, I just, Iram has, is, uh, is publishing a book. It'll be Siraj Bashford and Mayo coming out Cambridge University Press, your own, very own press, in the autumn um, on resilient children. And here's just uh, some, uh, a couple, you know, quotes from the children. Iram interviewed resilient children who had really done well. She interviewed children who hadn't done well, whose trajectories were quite poor. And she looked especially at the parents, the parents' role. So here's a couple quotes. This is Danila. uh, And Danila was a child who did much, much better than she was expected to do from her early profile at the age of three. Uh, And here's Danila's father. We did our best because it was always when Danila was born, I was a bus driver. So I was always there swapping shifts to be at home in the evenings. And if I wasn't there, the mom was always there. So we feel we've done well. Danila's father, they really supported Danila, who was a a high flyer in the EPI study. Not ending up in the top third, Danila is ending up somewhere around the 50 centile, but she was predicted to be in the bottom 20 centile. So Danila is a high flyer if you take where she began and what she did. And here you see Danila's father, who's part of 
our explanation of why Danila was a high flyer. She's not going to be a brain surgeon, but she's probably going to be manager of a bank. So, I mean, Danila, we think, is going to do very well. Uh, and here's Danila's mother, who says, I did most of the thing, but I, I am at work, and then she would do it in the evenings. I think this is homework. Most times I always try. He'll be there, this is the dad, and sit down with them. If I'm in the kitchen, you know, he'll help them out with their studies and reading and stuff, and when I'm free, I'll join in as well. So um, in the case studies, this book coming out from CUP, you'll see lots and lots of detailed examples of kind of things that the parents did, as well as interviews with their teachers in uh, the end of primary. But now we see a less positive vignette. This is Lorraine, who's a white working class girl who didn't do as well as Danila. And she says, I didn't know the sounds of the letters. I knew how to say them, like A, B, C, but not A, B, K, because that's what they were teaching then. That's what the preschool tried to teach me. But my mom had taught me the A, B, C. So I had to get used to a totally new thing. So here you have... Lorraine, whose parents might have been just as caring as Danila's, but they didn't, they, poor Lorraine was very confused. She could sing the alphabet song, probably backwards, but she didn't know the sounds of the letters. And nobody had worked with her with L, the sound L, and that's what your name begins with. Uh, and, she, and Lorraine was very confused when she got to school. So the home learning environment is not just how much you care and how much you try, it's also the fine-tuning with the, which you support your child. So we can't assume to say to parents, you're the child's first educator, spend a lot of time with them. Lorraine was very confused. This is the home learning environment. But in the home learning environment, for about five years, we just totaled it all up. So you saw the early bar, chart, bar graph where, you know, child had a, their home learning environment was a 17 and another home learning environment was, a, you know, a 38. But uh, Lydia Chan and I thought, well, let's dig into the home learning environment. We knew the home learning environment, the total score was related, for example, to um, reading. But what, which aspects of the home learning environment, and these this two slides, we disaggregated the items on the home learning environment. And the items about teaching the sounds of the language, and the items about playing with plastic alphabet letters were related to children's decoding skills at the age of five. And decoding is phonological awareness, letter recognition, what was not related to decoding skills is reading to your child, is going to the library, is even rhymes, is not related to decoding skills. They're all related to vocabulary. So in a sense, if you think about Lorraine's mother, probably read to her, probably knew how important it was to read to her, but didn't understand about breaking up words into the constituent parts. And so when we disaggregated the home learning environment, and we just published this in 2010, we found that certain aspects of the home learning environment predict decoding, and certain aspects, like reading to your child and going to the library, and that's what we tell parents to do, they're very good for vocabulary development, but they don't help in decoding at all. And they're not, there will be some help in reading, but not the real help, the engine room of help, for that child five and six is really phonological awareness. That's the engine room of learning to read. Uh, and some middle-class children are getting this at home. 
within fun and games. And so when all the children get to school, you have Lorraine, who can sing the alphabet song perfectly, and then you have some other child who's obviously named Francesca, uh, and Francesca knows every um, you know, sound, knows that there are so many sounds in the English language. So that, this is new data, and it, we just published it uh, about a year and a half ago, that the home learning environment, it really matters which kinds of things you do with the, the literacy experiences and somehow the middle class you know damn their eyes seem to do it perfectly I don't know how they do it Um, but we have tested it in epi and we really see different things that you do at home lead to different kinds of of children's learning Uh, this is the vocabulary and this really says that going to the library is good for vocabulary songs and poems are good for the vocabulary and playing with friends at home is good for vocabulary but none of these things touch decoding skills Now, does preschool attendance matter by the time children get to seven? Um, And this this slide is just raw data. Uh, Here, this is um, in reading, and this is writing. But here, this top line, these are the children who went to preschool. And we've, we've grouped them by professional parents, skilled and intermediate class jobs, and unskilled or unemployed parents. And these are the children who went to preschool. So the, the professional children of professional parents do very well. Intermediate jobs do mediumly well. Uh, lower jobs do not so well. But these are the children who didn't go to preschool. But what's important about these raw numbers, and I think we presented these to Parliament in 2003, is this is level two in reading. Now, we use the actual raw tests Uh, And so we use the real actual scores for reading, not the levels. So, and then we decimalized it. So, you know, you could get, we decimalized it for parliament, for MPs. So you could get a score, a level 2.2. You could be level 2.4. You could be level 2.6. Because we decimalized the raw scores to turn them in a a kind of a level score. So the children, the the, uh, professional children, their average score is 2.7. They're at level 2.7, because we, we really turned it into a number. And these are the children from the professional classes who didn't go to preschool, and they're at level 2.3. These are the children we worry about. These children are at level 1.9. In other words, these children are under level 2, and they are working-class children or children whose parents are unemployed, and these children didn't go to preschool. And so we are... It, 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 it's clear that going to preschool helps everybody. It's clear it doesn't narrow the gap. But in absolute terms, and we made this argument with the select committee and at the department of, I think it was in those days, maybe the DFES, um, that these children are going into key stage two with their hands tied behind their back because their, re- their absolute reading scores are not at the level they need to begin key stage two. Do you see? So it's not that preschool has narrowed the gap. It really hasn't. In fact, here, the gap is even bigger. But in absolute terms, in absolute terms, going to preschool, these kids are at level 2.3, comfortably above level 2. So they're going to be ready to tackle key stage 2. These children who are under level 2, and there's a lot of them in this country, they're going into key stage 2 with reading not adequate in absolute terms for the job they're going to have to do. And this was a very, very influential graph 
uh, in the beginning of this century. And it was very important for uh, making the universal offer for preschool for everybody. Uh, Okay, now does preschool quality matter at age 11? That's the theme. And remember I said that we were going to look not only at different kinds of quality, different ways of assessing quality, but we're also going to look at does just going to preschool matter? Fine. Or does, uh, does does the quality really have a special extra effect over and above just going? And the rest of this presentation will be about that. Okay, now, we measured quality in two ways, and this is kind of the little assessment bit, I guess, of the, of the talk. Um, we used the Eckers R, which is an American uh, instrument, Harms, Clifford, and Cryer. I think many of you know it if you've come from uh, early childhood settings. You'll know the Eckers R. And it looks at space and furnishings, personal care routines, uh, program structure, uh, uh, facilities for parents and staff, it kind of is the whole child, and at the core of it is the feel, is a kind of theory about um, that children learn through play, and that what's really important is social development for children. That should be the big objective of preschool, and that um, a kind of well balanced, happy program is what children need. Uh, we in England. Uh, looked at the Eckers R, and we thought, we knew, we had desirable learning outcomes already when we designed this, and I was working on the working party that was devising the the first EYFS, and I knew we were going to be in communication language and literacy, we were going to be in maths, we were going to be in the environment. I knew what was coming in our curriculum. So um, Iram, Brenda Taggart, and I devised a rating scale we called the Eckers E extension, curricular extension, that really looks at the provision in an early years setting to stimulate children's language and literacy, to stimulate mathematics, and to stimulate uh, science. Uh, And the diversity subscale, which is the fourth of the subscales, takes literacy, numeracy, and science, and it says, do they kind of implement these three curricular areas in a way that's tailored to children of different abilities, to children of different genders, and children of different cultures. So the diversity subscale is kind of the the ratcheting of the three main curriculum areas, and it says, okay, fine, you know, you got your score for maths, but now are you doing it, do you have provision for all the abilities in your class, do you have provision for all the ethnic groups? So the diversity. It's a curricular assessment. How good is the curriculum in this setting uh, for stimulating, promoting children's development? Uh, so uh, this is the accuracy literacy uh, and has communication as well. Maths, science, and diversity. All right. Now, mm, uh, in the front, you can see this. We'll look just... This is the R, which is kind of the whole child... <laughs> Uh, kind of developmentally appropriate practice, American instrument. And we'll just look at the sevens. Uh, This is for greetings and departures. So to get a seven, which means you're excellent, it's a scale that goes from one to seven. When they arrive, children are held to become involved in activities. You don't have children arriving and wandering about and not knowing what they're doing. That's one of the uh, indicators to get a seven. Uh, Children are busily involved until they depart. There's no long waiting without activities. Children are allowed to come and go comfortably. There's no stopping them in their play. Parents can come and get children and take them out. It really is 
uh, that the, the activities are really there for the child and not for the pleasure of the adults running the routine. Uh, and here's, mm, here's uh, the third indicator, is staff use greeting and departure as a time to really talk to the parents about the child, what's special about the child. So that's just one item. There are 43 items on the Akizar. Uh, and remember that these items are only like litmus tests. If you did all 43 items brilliantly, you would not have a brilliant center. The, the, the job in assessment and assessing the quality of provision is to find indicators that you can see very clearly, that you can agree with other people on, and that are correlated with a lot of the other stuff that really matters too, but that you can't measure. So these 43 items are not the most important things we do for children. They happen to be items that um, are correlated. They come in packages with all the things that we... So think of the item as the top of the iceberg. What's really making the child prosper related to this item is everything in the iceberg. But we've chosen just one indicator of that whole package of things, and that one indicator represents all the other things that really matter. So if you're a good teacher of children, you do thousands of things, and we've just chosen a few items that are reliable, reliably attached to all the other stuff that you do every day. So that... It's just a little bit on assessment. We don't think that the ECRSE, which really predicts children's development, and you're going to see it in a minute, we don't think that just those things are what does it. It's just those are things that you can see every day clearly, you can agree with other people, and they happen to be attached to a lot of other stuff that really matters as well. And I think we don't talk about that in assessment. What, what is an item? I mean, an item just represents a whole lot of other stuff that really matters, And the genius of getting a good item is that you get one that's reliable, that's easy to score. Um, And both of these scales, both of these rating scales, are are pretty good workhorses of assessment. Uh, Okay, now we're going to go to the Eckers E, and we'll just look at the sevens. This is uh, from the literacy subscale in the Eckers E. Um, And to get a seven, attention is paid to syllables in words. Um, And to get a five... Uh, here, you have to do pay attention to rhyming and songs and rhymes with children. But to get a seven, you have to do um, you have to pay attention to syllables. And a lot of settings don't pay attention to syllables. Let's play a game. Kathy Silva, yeah. Um, Paul Newton, Tim Oates, <laughs> John Oates, and children. I mean, that's just a clapping game. But I mean, I'm not proposing that to get a seven, you sit children down and drill them in syllables. I mean, it would be boring and horrible, and they would, you know, throw the furniture around the room. But there are all kinds of fun, wonderful, exciting ways to pay attention, not just to rhymes, but to pay attention to alliteration, initial sounds, and to pay attention also to syllables. And we can... This is a good predictor. It doesn't mean that clapping games is the thing that's going to make a child a good reader, but the kinds of settings that do this are the kinds of settings that do a lot of other things, too. And that's a good example of how one indicator kind of comes along in a package with all the other good things that we haven't measured. Uh, Okay, so that's sounds and words. Um, Now, this is my favorite item, and Iram invented it. Um, It's looking at the setting for 
um, how it uses cookery, and by cookery, we, we have a very loose definition of cookery, it's um, uh, transforming raw materials into something that you could eat. So if you freeze ice cubes, we call that cookery, in that you know, you're transforming some material that you can eat. Um, and you, can, you could assess cookery for uh, cultural um, sympatheticness, you know, cultural appropriateness. You could look and see what they serve. You could see if there's discussion about how we cook in different cultures. But here we're looking at preparing food insofar as it helps children develop notions of science. So I'll give you some examples of using of cookery. Um, and I'll go through this in some detail. At a, to get a one, which is completely inadequate, there's no preparation of food or drink ever undertaken in front of the children. That's a one. That's a fail. Never. And there are quite a few settings I know that they never do anything in front of the children. And, and they're missing out on such you know, wonderful uh, learning opportunities. Three... Food, which uh, two, four, and six, there are rules for how to get them, but we won't go into them. But three, food preparation is undertaken by staff, and the children can watch. Well, that's all right. It's not very good, but at least it's adequate. And another indicator for three, some children can choose to participate. Probably the favorite little children can come up and do something, or the naughty little children can come up. And here, some food-related discussion... It takes place, oh, Johnny, we have these new, you know, biscuits, or we're having cucumber today. Do you have this at home? And Johnny says, oh, yes, you know, we have cucumbers at home. Very limited discussion, but a little bit of discussion. It's adequate. Now let's look at five, which is using food preparation for science. Okay. Food preparation and cooking activities are provided regularly. Now how, in a one-day observation, are we going to find this? We ask to look at the records. We want to see what they've been doing, and we want to see the plans, that they've done it regularly. Um, Most of the children have the opportunity to participate. Now there may be a few children who don't, but most of the children in this setting are going to participate at least once a week in something having to do with food preparation. The staff lead discussion about the food, and they use appropriate language. The cheddar cheese is hard. It's cold. The butter is soft. Um, And children are encouraged to use more than one sense. They're encouraged to touch it, feel it, talk about what it looks like, what it smells like, what it feels like. Okay. But here's the excellent. These are the settings that get a seven on this item because they use food preparation for science. And I'll give some examples. A variety of cooking activities in which all children, even a child with special needs who might be in that class, are taking part regularly. Um, The ingredients are attractive, and the end result is edible and appreciated. So if you cook something that's just rubbish, you can't get a seven. It has to be, like, known as something that's edible. Uh, And here we have the staff lead and encourage discussion on the process of food preparation and question the children about it. This is, this, we call this instruction, in our view, instruction is not a bad thing. It includes questioning, demonstrating, modeling, sometimes telling. So instruction is not a bad thing. You don't want to do too much of it. Use it sparingly. So you can instruct children by asking them questions. And I'll give you a couple examples of settings that got a seven on this item. Um, one setting I saw they had, they had knives, and the teacher had a very sharp knife because the teacher's cutting cheddar, 
Um, and the children had a, you know, just palette nights that children are allowed to have. And the teacher led a discussion on why, you, why hers is the only knife that will cut the cheddar. What is it about the cheddar that needs the hard knife? And why is it that their palette knife can cut butter quite easily? And it was quite a nice little discussion about science, and it was just done in the context of cookery. And I'll give you another one. This is one of the all-star settings that I saw. Um, they had been making ice lollies. It was nice summer, and they were putting things in the freezer, and they happened to have a freezer. I think it was in the staff room that they had a freezer. Um, and they, but they took ice cubes, and they uh, took them out, and they put a bowl of ice cubes in the sun, and they put a bowl of ice cubes under a bush in the shade. And then they went and checked to see what happened to their ice cubes. Now, we kind of called this food preparation. I mean, they were ice cubes, and they could drink the water. But it really was what happens to, to ice when it's in strong heat as opposed to in the shade, and what, what about this product, and how you make ice, and how does it melt, and what's it made from. And is it the same water? You have the water first, and then you make the ice cubes, and then it melts out there in your garden. And is that the same water? Actually, it is the same water. And it, but it has transformed itself. So these are just very nice ways of getting high marks on the accuracy for science um, at just using something as ordinary as preparing food. Okay. Now, this is the Eckers E, which is the pedagogical one, which turns out to be a much better predictor of children's academic progress. The Eckers E, which is really on pedagogy and curriculum, is a stronger predictor of academic progress than the one that's about greetings and departures and, you know, being nice to children. Uh, so here's the Eckers E, and this is the literacy, and we've taken all the managers in the EPI study, so 141 preschool settings, so we have 141 managers, and we've grouped them into managers who have, this is in old money, who have a, a level two in old money. This is a level three, which would be the equivalent of an old-fashioned NNEB, and this is a CQ, a, a QTS teacher. So on literacy, this is the average score for the centers, the average score for the settings of all those settings led by a manager with a level two. This is the average score of all those settings led by a manager with a level three, and this is the average score in literacy, all those settings led by a teacher. Um, even an MP can understand this graph. It really tells you what kind of staff you really, if you want to have high quality, who should you hire? And, of course, these teachers cost more money, and you get what you pay for often. This is mathematics. These are, these are all the settings led by level two, settings led by level three, by QTS, teacher. This is science in the environment, and this is diversity. But it, we sometimes look at, the, look at bar charts like these. Where's the elbow? Where's the big jump? And for literacy, the big jump is being a teacher. And the big jump here, I think, in science and environment is also in being a teacher. We didn't have the EYPSs in the EPI study because we did our observations around the turn of the century. So we have only qualified teachers. But it will be interesting to do this with, with the newest qualification. Okay, that was just a little aside. I mean, what kinds of settings and what kinds of staff were really um, having very high quality, having medium quality, and then having low quality. Now, we're gonna, we've looked at a little bit at the influence of the home. We've seen Lorraine's mother and mother. We've heard about Lorraine's mother. We've, we've heard direct quotes from Daniela's mother and father. 
Um, you've seen that there's certain activities at home that are going to prompt decoding but not vocabulary and some that are going to prompt vocabulary. Now we're going to look at the quality of the preschool. And remember, we have almost 3,000 children when you take our home children. And they're all in this big, long kind of, if you can imagine a huge list. Take any score. Take Sats reading at age 11. So you've got the top kid here, you've got the bottom kid here, and you've got this huge list of children. And we want to see what are the variables, the factors that are going to predict where is a child in this incredible long ladder. Okay? What do you think are some of the factors or characteristics of the child or the family that are going to predict being at the top or the middle or the bottom? What are some of the factors? There must be a thousand studies that will tell you the answer. Are you just shy or? Be rich. Absolutely. <laughs> Social economic class. Definitely, that's going to give you a lot of predictability of where the child is on the ladder. What are some of the other ones? Mother's uh, education. Okay. Yeah, mother's education, more than father's education. For the preschool child, father's education kicks in when the kid's around 11. So parent's education. And parent, your variable is stronger than your variable. Actually, the mother's education stronger than the job and stronger than the salary. What else? Be white. Yes, exactly. Um, if you look at progress, the ethnic minorities often make more progress once they get to school, because often it's language that's holding them back. But if you look at absolute attainment, the, the white children often, uh, unless you're Chinese, of course. Yeah. What else? Health. What? Health. We don't have much on health. We have birth weight, and that does predict, you're quite right. And we also have early, de- or early problems, health problems, and that predicts as well. Yep. What? Yep, being a girl, for most of our outcomes, being a girl, up until age 11, when being a boy is as good, but being a girl, definitely. Stable family. Ah, yes, some are born from Tim, yeah. Stable family. Uh, Yes, Um, we found, yes, in the early uh, bits of epi, we didn't have a family structure, uh, significant effect, but we now, at the age of 14, are finding that children from two-parent families are doing better. It may be for the little, the little one that a single parent really can give all the love or whatever is needed. But probably when you get teenagers, it may be more important to have two of you to share the, the misery. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, you know all these things. Christopher Ball has a... Well, we work together on the Start Right Report, and Christopher said... Um, uh, if you're, imagine yourself up in heaven and you're just a little soul and you're going up to God and God is going to send you down to earth and you can say, okay, God, make me this. And he said, what would be your list? What would you want to be? And it's everything you said, you know, make me rich, make my parents educated, make me come from a family less than four children. That's another one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, make me not be summer born from Tim. Uh, make me not have health problems. Uh, make me have a, a, a normal birth weight, etc., etc., etc. And this is what you say to God. Uh, but... You could also say to God, what kind of schools you, you, know, you want to go to? And the answer there is you don't want to go to schools where all the children are disadvantaged. So if, you know, if God gives you a, enough time before he shoots you off to earth, 
Um, you can tell him your educational history that you'd like to have. You want to go to a school that has quite a few middle-class children because in the EPI study, one of the predictors of children's profile when they got to school was not only their own parents' education, but the education of all the parents of all the children in the setting, the average IQ of all the children in the setting, because the, the kinds of children you're with matter a lot. And we suppressed this. EPI suppressed this finding for three years and um, we just didn't know how to talk about it. But we finally, I don't know how many of you here have had findings that you're not sure what to do with. I'm sure everybody in Cambridge Assessment. But um, I had thought, and I'd been taught in the United States, that if children, if children who come from middle-class families go to um, more challenged schools, they do all right because they're middle-class about that children from more challenged families will do better if they go to middle-class schools. Uh, that's not the case, actually. It, 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 there's a direct effect of the other children in your school. And if you go to a really wonderful school where all the children are clever and have big vocabularies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you have, you, we can see the impact of that in the children's developmental profile. Uh, doesn't mean you don't send your children to mixed schools, but you're sending them for other reasons. Uh, so, okay, this is the Eckers E um, on children's uh, maths. This is the SAT at year six. And I've set to zero. Uh, these are all the children. Right here we see the red dot, the home children. So we've set their SAT score to zero, okay? Now these are the children. Uh, red is, in, is uh, English, so we'll just look at the red. If you, if you went to a low-quality school... You, the effect of is about 0.12. So the effect of quality, low quality, gives you about a 0.12 advantage over these children who stayed at home. If you went to middle quality, middle quality gives you an even bigger advantage. It's about 0.22. This is 0.22, kind of of a standard deviation. Um, over these children who stayed at home. And these children went to high quality, and their gain, their advantage is 0.29 over the home children. So you see, for every quality jump, the children's scores on English SATs at the age of 11 are higher. And remember, we have covariate, remember we had this big ladder of all the children. If we, all the variables that you've talked about, you know, gender and birth weight and number of children in the family, all those variables have been put into this equation first. And now we just add the quality. It's multi-level modeling where we put all the other stuff first. And now we see over and above your home, over and above your language you speak, over and above how many children in your family, is there a discernible, measurable effect of the quality of your preschool that you attended three from 11, seven years ago? And there is. Oh, now I've turned it off again. Okay, right. And, and this, it, it just goes up in a very, very nice uh, linear pattern. Uh, and the green is maths. Uh, and maths quality is even stronger. The quality is even stronger on maths than it is on reading, uh, on English. And that's because English is pretty influenced by the home and maths is less influenced by the home. It's more influenced by uh, the, the kind of preschool that you went to. So this is on the Eckers E, and remember I said we wanted to devise an assessment of quality that was kind of um, starchy, rigorous, gritty, and we did. Uh, and you'll see here 
there is no effect of the Eckers R on, on academic attainment at all. So all those nice things, you know, being nice to children and having lots of songs and games and dances and being respectful of other people's cultures, all those things which are really very good, do not influence your SATs results when you're 11. But what does influence your SATs results is the more kind of learning-oriented quality of the preschool. Okay, uh, this is just the last bit. This is social behavioral outcomes, and we measured hyperactivity, self-regulations, pro-social behavior, and antisocial behavior. And this is uh, self-regulation, which is a good thing. I know John knows a lot about it here in the audience. Um, all the children who didn't go to preschool are set to zero. These are the children who went to low quality. They don't have much self-regulation at all. As a matter of fact, it's not statistically significantly different from staying at home. So for, and this is on the Eckers R. The Eckers R, the more social-oriented quality, has effects on social and emotional outcomes. It just doesn't on cognitive outcomes. So it's not measuring worthless things, but it's measuring things that are the engine for social development rather than intellectual development. But the Eckers E, quite amazingly, also affects um, social and emotional development. So the kind of the whole child quality measurement is related to social and emotional development, but not cognitive development. The one that's the pedagogical rating scale is related to both. And that was a surprise. We thought that the Eckers E would predict cognitive and the Eckers R would predict social. But actually, the Eckers E predicts both. Uh, so this is self-regulation, which is a good thing to have. So this is the accuracy. So with every jump in quality, you do better than the children. And again, for, the, uh, for low quality, in both of the rating scales, low quality preschool for self-regulation, you might as well have stayed at home. It, you really don't get anything extra. And you're going to see now in a lot of these graphs, the low quality is useless because you might as well, you're, you're no different from the home group of children. Next one, this is antisocial behavior, so the bars go down because it's a bad thing. So you want to have um, little of it. Um, and the children, uh, I've done it again. Oh, there. Uh, the children here who went to the highest quality, they have the least antisocial behavior. Ones who went to middle quality have a little bit of antisocial behavior. Ones who went to low quality have this. Ones who stayed at home. And here, the home and low quality and middle quality are not statistically different from one another. So for antisocial behavior, you have to go to high quality or you don't have an effect. And I'm just showing you some of the results. We have oodles of results, but these are just some. But the picture is for academic outcomes, you need the academic quality. For social and emotional outcomes, both kinds of quality are important. But for lots of our measures, when the child is 11, if you went to low quality or medium quality even, you don't, you're no different from children who stayed at home. So high quality is always effective. Medium quality is often effective. Low quality is rarely effective. So if you're spending money, if don't invest in low quality, you might as well build a road or build a hospital because you're not getting anything back in terms of children's developmental outcomes. This is evidence-based policy. Uh, so that's antisocial behavior. Now, we won't go into this, it's too complicated. Uh, and this is what we talked about. Uh, we're now looking at value-add 
Do you see this slide? If you do get it, everything you've looked at before are attainment models. Those of you who understand, they have, they're not value add. They're kind of just co-varying everything and looking at the outcome at age 11. This is progress. So we're looking at how much progress all our 3,000 children made between the ages of 7 and 11. So we've got their SATs at 7, we have their SATs at 11, we have their behavioral records at 7 and their behavioral records at 11. So we're seeing how much progress children are making. And this, these next two slides, this one and the next one, are really answering the question, does quality preschool make you be, have a better profile that you then hold on to those gains, or does quality preschool make you a better learner? In other words, transform you as a learner. And these two slides are the evidence on that. So what makes you a better learner? Uh, there's another, what makes you make a lot of progress between 7 and 11? I'll have to read it for you. Um, being a girl, you make more progress, so you are right. Being Bangladeshi, you make more progress. The Bangladeshi children in our sample came in with quite low scores, but they did very, very well, better than the Pakistani children, actually, in the EPI sample. But the numbers are small, and I'm sure Paul has better data on, on this kind of thing. Um, a social economic class, skilled manual is better than being unemployed, etc. Um, this is the parents' uh, qualifications. Obviously, they all make a difference. This is the home learning environment. And the home learning environment, when the children were in preschool, you have to have the highest quality. By the time they're 11, the highest quality is the only one that is still mattering. Um, so, okay, now we go to the next, and this, I think, is the final of the data slides. Um, this is... The net effect of quality, here you've got low quality, here's the home children, low quality, medium quality, and high quality on progress. So this is not just what you were like when you were 11, it's what you were like at 11 controlled for what you were like at 7. So it's the amount of progress you made in these four years, and we're relating it to quality. And low quality, here's home children, this is low quality, and this, low, children who went to low quality are only 0.05 better than the home children. It's not significant. So for progress, for being a transformed learner, if you go to low quality, forget it. You are not a transformed learner. You're just like everybody else. But if you go to medium quality, this is significant. Effect size of 0.15 in a sample this size is significant. Uh, and so these children are significantly better than low quality, and they're significantly better than the, than the home children. And these children who went to high quality are 0.23 better and they are significantly better than the medium and significantly better than the low quality. So this, another kind of common epi finding is that the quality not only makes a difference to how good you are or what are your scores or what is your self-regulation, but it also is related to how much you grab out of your learning experiences. And if you go to medium quality or high quality, you're really good at grabbing it. Okay, now, what, is, what, are, what makes you be a good grabber, you know, getting the most out of your education? This is our guess, um, and we don't... Pam Summons is now modeling this as we speak uh, in Oxford. Uh, we think... But we, uh, everything I've said so far, we have absolute data and statistical models. This one, we don't have them yet. We're still working on them, and I know people in Cambridge are working on this as well, but this is in the EPI data. Here's the home learning environment, which has a... Ah, see, here's the home learning environment, and here's preschool. They both have a direct effect 
on literacy and on numeracy. Can you see? This is the direct effect, this straight line. But they also influence self-regulation when you're five. So the early years home learning environment has this direct effect, say at age 11, and it also at five is influencing self-regulation. This is the preschool, which has a direct effect, but it's also influencing self-regulation. When you do the models, and I think we're using structural equation modeling this week, uh, you find out that over and above these direct pathways, the pathway that goes through self-regulation gives you more explained variance. So that self-regulation, we think, is what one of the characteristics that mediates the outcomes that we're seeing at age 11. But I cannot prove this to you. It's just what we think. Uh, and, but we hope by the autumn we'll have a paper on it. So now... Quality fosters the capacity for learning how to learn. Preschool attendance alone was associated with better attainment. So remember on that ladder, all those children on the ladder, preschool attendance is more likely to put you near the top. But it's not more likely to make you an accelerated learner. What makes you an accelerated learner is the quality. And this suggests the quality preschool experience not only provides children with an initial boost when they get to school, but also helps to promote progress, probably by fostering self-regulation in children. And now, um, we're at the very end, and everybody who is going to be in the role play, please come. We have two teachers. You're going to see an example of some brilliant teaching um, and I use the word teaching because the teaching doesn't have to be done by teachers. Teachers are done by parents and all kinds of staff. We need the girls, yeah? We've got a couple girls and boys. Um, and I'm going to be the teacher. This lovely example is from Lillian Katz. Um, and it's called the Light Up Shoes. So four children are playing together. Play, you guys, yeah? Ooh. Boys and girls? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Three of them are wearing trainers that would light up when they step down on them. Okay. <laughs> Wow, look at your shoes. That's so cool. They light when you step down. Yes, they do this. <laughs> How does that happen? How does that happen? How does it light up? Because they're new. Mine are new, but they don't light up. No, no, because they light up when you step down on them. Mine don't light up, and I've stepped down very hard. No, 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 you have to have these holes. I have holes in my shoes, but my shoes don't light up. Uh, sorry, this is me. Josh has holes in his trainers, too, and his don't light up either. I wonder why. I think you need batteries. Kids, you need batteries. <laughs> yeah, you need batteries to make them work. But I didn't see, see batteries when I put my toes in. <laughs> I think they're under your toes. <laughs> I can't feel the batteries under my toes. I wonder how we can find out more about this. So... Thank you, intrepid role players from uh, Cambridge, Open University, and Norfolk. Thank you. Um, now, where is the genius in this? I mean, it, you, you can say this is just normal. It goes on in nurseries all the time. It goes on in playgroups all the time. Where, where has the teacher really shown what I call a real pedagogical spark? 
She didn't tell them anything, but which line? Well, yours is, if you look at all the lines, she's not giving them the answers. That's very true. How about the questioning? She's getting them to think and look. She said, that's funny, mine don't. I said, they're really good. Yeah. I think that's the best genius myself. It's the first counterfactual. See, the child says, um, how does it light up? Because they're new. That's the first hypothesis, because they're new. And the teacher says, mine are new. And that, to me, is really genius. And then the other child says, uh, but they light up when you step down. And the teacher then tries it herself. Tries it. And then they say, well, okay, then it's holes. Teacher says, I have holes. And this is really very, very good. I call it teaching. Teaching is nothing to be ashamed of. And all, all people can teach. I'm not saying you have to be a teacher to teach. This is really good teaching because it's part of what Iram calls sustained shared thinking. This is really working with children on a problem. You have it in a group and you go deeper and deeper and deeper and you're going somewhere. You have a topic, you have an issue, you have some kind of problem and you go somewhere and you, and you get someplace. And this is going to lead to all kinds of experimenting. Children are going to bring in all the trainers that they own and we're going to do what Lillian Katz would call project, I think. And I think it's a really wonderful example. And the, uh, the children who did so well in the EPI study, who went to high quality, they were taught, not a bad word, um, by grown-ups, I'll call them adults of some kind, and they were genius. And they really thought with the children. You think alongside the children, and it's not a bad thing to lead them every now and then. But you lead them by asking them these really good questions, not by giving them mini-lectures. So that's the end, Paul, of the talk. And does preschool, high-quality preschool, uh, help children transform them into better learners? And I'd argue yes. Thank you. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.